a really dark period was we were in New Jersey in the inner city. We went to the doctor and the doctor put him on a diet. After dinner, uh, I would not serve him a second piece of pie. He said, well, if I can't have a second piece of pie, I have nothing to live for. And he started walking upstairs saying that he has nothing to live for and that he was going to blow his brains out. I stood at the bottom of the stairs thinking, is he bluffing? When life as you know it is flipped upside down, we struggle to make sense of it all. Why would a good God allow this to happen? Hi, I'm Sherry Pilkington, your host of Finding God in Our Pain. In early 2018, the deepest questions of my life erupted when I unexpectedly lost my husband of 32 years. Since then, I've searched the heart of God for what he has to say about pain and suffering. In this podcast, we'll discover how God enters into our pain, shepherds us through our darkest valley, and out into the green pastures once again. I'll bring you firsthand stories from women who will allow us into their authentic struggle, along with professional advice from experts, counselors, and others who can speak to what it looks like to navigate pain. Join me as we discover God's answers to the deepest cries of our shattered heart. As with any of my interviews, I'm talking with real people about their personal life and the way they, as the individuals they are, experience trauma. Today, I'm talking with Diana Winkler, and she shares her story about being in an abusive marriage, having the courage to leave and get a divorce, and what healing looks like for her. This conversation has the potential to go wrong, very wrong. And what I mean by that is I'm aware that we can get focused on the wrong thing, mainly because... This topic, this conversation is about divorce combined with the fact that we're talking in a Christian context. So with that in mind, I have a challenge for you. I'd like to suggest that as you listen to Diana's authentic struggle, that you take the focus off the law about divorce, not to diminish it in no way, shape or form to remove the truth of God's word, because the truth is divorce grieves the heart of God. It's a vow, a covenant, and the God of the Holy Bible honors and fulfills all of his covenants. But what I want us to see is the person, Diana, and her real-life efforts, struggles, confusion, and the pain as she tries to make sense of the abuse she's experiencing within what was originally, however misrepresented, was defined as a Christian marriage. As I explored Diana's journey with her, it was for the purpose of trying to understand what she experienced through her individual lens of looking at and discerning the world she lives in and the gods she's struggling to discover. As simple as that. I'm not saying I agree with her or that I disagree with her. I think we all know that our personal journey of discovering who God is looks as unique as the individual he's created us. And even saying that, I'm reminded of how even what I interpret uh, the word to be, I'm on a, on a scale of maturing with him. So it may not line up accurately with the word. When we question and search God's heart and his word, praying, worshiping, and listening for his voice, I trust him to reveal himself to his beloved. And I want to point out that even when we're in the midst of digging into God, that we miss him. How many times have I been walking the right way, doing work for the Lord? But when I actually slow down, listen to him, that's when I discover I am so far off course. And yet he still gives me endless grace and extravagant mercy. And I'll be honest. I, too, struggle with the fact that God, the same God that gave us marriage, also gave us divorce. And what does it look like to him when we're being torn apart mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually? Abuse was not part of the marriage covenant, I feel sure, because the covenant keeper, God, would never abuse us. 
surely abuse matters to him. Our relationship with Christ is personal and our learning curves are at different paces. God is patient with us. And so I have no judgment about where any one person is on their maturing process with Christ. I'm open to the fact that it can look different because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The one who formed our inward parts, the one who needed, needed me together in my mother's womb, speaks of such an intimacy that I trust him with our struggle, even when we make mistakes, even when we completely miss the mark. Just like any of our human relationships, when we spend more time with each other, there is more depth with which we know each other. And the same can be said about God. We experience an ever-increasing intimacy with anyone that we spend more time with. And I say that to say this. Some of us have a solid footing, a rich intimacy with God, and others of us are still learning. This conversation today is for not the Proverbs 31 woman. The woman we're talking to needs healing. So this conversation is for the Proverbs 13, 12 woman, the one whose hope deferred has made her heart sick. She's the one who would say she has no solid ground to put her feet on, no peaceful place to rest her heart. And I want her to know she's not alone, that God sees her and that he sees the pain, the anguish of her shattered heart, and he has something beautiful for her. I want her to know that God embraces her search for him in the painful places. He welcomes her questions, her pain, and he hasn't allowed anything that he does not plan to redeem. All I'm trying to say is that even though God divorced Israel, forgiving herself, her affections to other gods, he still had a plan of redemption, and he still has one for you too. There's extravagant grace in God's covenant with us. Thank you, Diana, for taking the time to share your heart of what it's like to walk through a difficult marriage and then endure divorce and heal from that. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm just honored to be on your show. I enjoy listening to it. You're here to, to talk about just a difficult marriage, struggling with whether to leave or not to leave. You're a Christian. God doesn't approve. But let's back up the storyline a little bit. What was life like before you met your husband? And then as you got into the marriage, because I think you mentioned y'all were married about 13 years. Yes. Were you walking strong with the Lord? Were you pursuing his heart, praying about somebody to marry? I'll tell you a little bit about how I grew up briefly and getting saved. I came from what I would call a, a loving, normal family. You know, we were dysfunctional, but not an abusive home. It wasn't perfect. Besides my parents divorcing, I had a relatively normal childhood. I sang since kindergarten. I took dance classes and all in the school plays and choir. I was raised uh, Catholic. I went to Catholic school, did all the sacraments like a good like a good Christian, and I knew Jesus loved me, and Jesus died for my sins on the cross, and I did all the good works required of me, but I never knew for sure if I was going to heaven when I died. So when I was 13, my cousins invited me to go to vacation Bible school with them, and that's when my cousins shared with me in the Bible how I could know for sure that I was heaven-bound. I found out that I didn't have to earn my way to heaven. Jesus did that for me on the cross. You know, salvation is by the grace of God. It's a gift that I just had to receive. So I prayed and I asked Jesus to save me that summer. Now, my parents were not supportive of my decision. 
they required me to go to the Catholic Church until I was 18 years old. And when I turned 18, I was then baptized in my cousin's church, which happened to be a Baptist church. Now, a year later, after attending my first missions conference, I was called into the ministry, and I started Bible college in uh, the fall to become a, a missionary. So the, the Baptist church that I was at, it was a, a fundamental Baptist college, which is pretty legalistic. Lots of rules, no pants on women, no beards for men, no movies, no mixed swimming, you know, a lot of outward conformity. You couldn't really be yourself in that environment. You weren't really allowed to complain. It was kind of always, you know, God is good. Praise the Lord. So even though your dog died that afternoon or you were sick or something, you really couldn't be real about things mm. or tell anybody that everything wasn't perfect. Women don't really have a voice in that environment. In school, I was working during the day, going to school at night. You know, Saturday was visitation or bus ministry. Sundays were insane. <laughs> bus ministry, Sunday school, church, you know, you take the kids home. Then you get to eat your lunch, go to choir practice. Then you go to the evening service. And then you had to find time to do all your homework and studying in between all that. So you're still in school, I guess, college, <laughs> yeah. because you said college. you graduated. Okay. And yeah. so you're doing that. So you're not married, but you're very devoted to the church, it sounds like. Very devoted oh. to the service of the church. Yes, exactly. Okay. Very nice. I mean, as far as we understand that we are to be devoted to Christ, but it is certainly not working, like you said, outward conformity and then working for salvation. We are working out our salvation, but it sounds like the rigidity that you were under really doesn't represent the heart of God. There was no such thing as work-life balance. Pastor would say, burnout is a cop-out. Really? No. So. Oh, that's sad because it's not true. God is a God of balance himself. <laughs> well, that's sad. I hate to hear that, but it does exist. If you don't know the mm -hmm. word yourself, you rely on your pastors to lead you and they're human just like yeah. anybody else. So. I, was, I would say I was a sincere follower of Jesus and wanted to serve him. But I was very gullible and vulnerable about life at 20 years old. That's just, it's just the way we all are, I guess. So that was the state I was in when I met my now ex-husband. What did he bring to the table as far as, did y'all have a commonality? What attracted you to him? I met my ex at my home church when I was on school break. Now, he had heard me sing a solo in church and wanted to meet me. So the pastor introduced us. And right away, he's like, I want to record an album for you. And he was a sound engineer and a record producer. I went back to, to school, but we kept in touch. And uh, we started dating when he came down to fix my car and cook me an Italian dinner. He was from a a really good traditional Italian family. He moved down to go to Bible college with me eventually, and we dated for about six months. There were definitely signs of an abusive personality, but I dismissed them as just being, oh, well, he's Italian. Don't mm -hmm. all Italians have tempers and mood swings? 
actually no (laughs) (laughs) but you're again 20 (laughs) yeah now he had told me he was bipolar and that his parents put him on medication to control him but he had flushed the pills down the toilet oh and he now claimed that the holy spirit cured him of bipolar the church tells its members that depression and mental illness or anxiety are sins Taking medication for it means that you don't have faith or trust in God. Wow. Which is wrong. Yeah, that is wrong. Now, he would have these really bad mood swings when we were dating. We were at his parents' house for a date, and I told him something really personal about myself. And he started calling me horrible names, and then he left his mom's house and drove around the block. Hmm. The next day, it was my birthday. And he took me to this French restaurant, and I'm still, you know, upset about what he did the night before. Oh, he apologized for last night's incident, and then he proposed with a diamond ring. Oh. So being a fool, I accepted. Well, I wouldn't call yourself a fool. You're 20, but there are those are some significant red flags. What were you telling yourself in order to downplay them? My mother and my sister didn't like him. They saw things that I didn't. Hmm. My mom noticed he wanted me to wait on him hand and foot. He was tapping the glass for me to go refill his beverage. We went to premarital counseling like we were supposed to. We didn't sleep together. We were serving the Lord, Mm -hmm. still going to school. When I think about your family of origin, do you think anything along that lines had anything to do with your inability to speak up and say, wait, hold on? I would not blame that on my family. I had a really good, loving family. I was innocent. I was very trusting. I was like Pollyanna, trying to have a positive attitude. And, oh, things will settle down when we get married. We're going to school and we're working full time and we're really busy and it's stressful right now. Things will settle down. Those Mm -hmm. are the kind of things that I told myself beforehand. So I am trying to remember back of being young and dating and whatnot, but I think we tell ourselves that it will get better or we just don't have the ability to understand what we're seeing is serious. Some of this behavior is not okay, but for some reason as young people, we don't make the connection that we need to take this seriously instead of just brushing it under the carpet or, you know, no big deal. It'll change. Things will settle down. I remember having thoughts like that myself, but I just wonder what the disconnect is for us as young people when we need to be looking at things and taking them seriously. So Mm -hmm. you have met your husband, you dated for six months, you get married. Does his mental illness get better? Does he take medicine for that? Or does he still claim that the Holy Spirit has healed him, yet he's still struggling with the results of mental illness? It got really, really bad. And no, he never took any medication for it. I was really shocked when the abuse started right away on the honeymoon. Part of his personality was that he had the ego the size of Texas. Very boastful. Neither of us were virgins, but we practiced what they call secondary virginity. But I was pretty comfortable with my sexuality, and I knew my body pretty well. Mm-hmm. So on the honeymoon, I was showing him you know, how my body worked and you know, what I needed to make the fireworks happen, you right. know, keeping this stuff PG here. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, he got so mad at me, you know, pointing some things out. 
he was like, well, all the other girls like this and that. Well, I'm not one of those girls. He got up right in the middle of everything. He drove around the neighborhood and I was left behind crying. So I knew right then and there that I had I had made a mistake marrying this man. But I, I wanted to be true to my ver- marriage vows. So I was going to try and make lemonade out of lemons. But this is going to be a pattern in our marriage. His family was making newlywed jokes and asking if I was pregnant yet. You know how it is. Right. And I just wanted to scream at them that, well, you can't get pregnant without a sex life. <laughs> Our first anniversary was the same way. We were in Lancaster, Pennsylvania at a bed and breakfast, and we got snowed in. 36 inches of snow. Couldn't go anywhere. And uh, he complained about having sex again. <laughs> so he would go out to help the Amish shovel snow. I played the piano and sang for the rest of the guests at the bed and breakfast and read books in the library. You're a newlywed, and most typical newlyweds, as you say, cannot stay out of the bedroom (laughs) or keep their hands off each other. So I would say that this is clearly very confusing. He is withholding affection, withholding uh, relationship. That's abuse in itself. What are you asking God during this time? What are the scriptures are are you going to? What are you crying out to the Lord for? I mean, being a Bible college student, I could quote verse after verse, but a lot of these verses that they tell you to memorize, they were shoved down my throat. So it's more of a legalistic issue still. God's word is not really penetrating your situation because it seems more of a judgment against you. Is that what you're saying? Well, you know, they say all things work out for good to them that are called according to his purpose and to submit to your husband and be a good keepers at home and Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And yeah, I knew all those verses and they'd quote Proverbs 31. And these are truths. The Bible yeah, verses are truths. are truths. So how do you make sense of that in your situation? Because your situation is very real to you. And now you're trying to apply the word in that situation. How did you make sense of God's word? I would like to say that I was super Christian and I had all the right attitudes, but I wasn't. I didn't. I was not liking how I was being treated. And I was questioning God. Look, Lord, I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing here. I'm serving you, Father. I I picked a Christian guy and I read my Bible and and I'm praying. Why am I getting uh, this kind of a treatment? Now, I, I didn't know what abuse was still. Did not know what manipulation was. I was being manipulated, but I didn't recognize it. Mm-hmm. I, I was being gaslighted, but I didn't know what those definitions were. Right. So you're so, trying to hold up the word of God to somebody who is not mentally stable. And so you're looking at truths, but yet how do you apply the truths to this situation? I think that's a huge challenge for any of us who are looking at a situation that makes no sense. We're having difficulty applying the word to our situation. And that that in itself will kick in a crisis. I mean, you can't apply the word to a real life situation. Did you feel like the word really wasn't working for you? How were you grasping at safety or any trying to get your bearings? 
I just kept myself busy. We were very busy starting churches and the ministry is extremely exhausting. I would pray and read my Bible. I did every ministry in the church except preaching and mm -hmm. kept myself busy, I guess, to deal with the pain and right. didn't tell anybody what was going on except later I told about three people. It sounds like two of the things that Satan loves to work in, and that would be silence, right? You can't tell anybody mm -hmm. because it's frowned upon in the church. And then isolation and then yeah. lies. I guess there's more than two. There's lies that are being perpetrated through the word because a lot of people like to throw around, around individual scriptures and tell you to use them in your life and apply them under a way of controlling you. Yet it's out of context. It's not being applied correctly or in that situation. So there's a lot of Satan's work going on at a young age where mm -hmm. you're trying to get your bearings on life anyway. As I'm talking about these things out loud, I, I'm remembering things that I've gone through, especially young. You will really put up with a lot when you're young. I don't know why. Maybe it's just you need some experience in life. You need some life under your belt in order to begin to make sense of some things, make sense of people, make sense of things like mental illness. When you're in the midst of a really horrible situation, you don't see the forest for the trees. Now I look back on things and I can I can see things just like you can. But when you're in the midst of it and you don't see any way out, there wasn't anybody to help me because I'm, I'm a ministry leader. I'm supposed to be the strong person. I have people under me that, that I was ministering to. I had to be that perfect person. You're human and you have problems in your life. I, I think that's one of the sad things in churches where their leaders have to look perfect because there's mm -hmm. just none of us that's perfect. We're in different stages of maturity in understanding who Christ is and walking out our personal relationship with him. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of pressure for you being in that position. You can't tell anybody. You can't look weak. You can't have any sort of brokenness or weakness. Um, no. So therein lies yet another tool of Satan to keep you from finding the truth. But you do have a direct relationship with God, meaning pressing into him. Was there ever a point where something gave, where the word made sense to you or you could stand on the word? I will say, even though the scriptures weren't as much of a comfort as you would think they would be, I, I had my music. Mm -hmm. And I would say that that was what I clung to. Music runs through my veins. Mm -hmm. And I could put on a song and that could change my mood. That was something that touched into my heart like nothing else. And all those people out there listening that love music too know this is true. That was probably my life preserver, I would say. Did you go back to the couple that counseled you? Did you ever go back and say, hey, this is seriously not working out? I was too embarrassed to go back to the original folks that counseled us because fast forward seven years of ministry and planting churches and living with this abusive man, and and I couldn't really go back and talk to them. A little um, bit of shame associated with that. As we mentioned before, I, I was trying to put on a happy face and look spiritual. And it sounds like there's no accountability for him in the church either. No. No, the men are in charge, at least in the churches we were in. And you do know that that's that although the Lord sets it up in that manner, there's a purpose for that. And it certainly is not what it was being used for in that mm -mm. particular no. setting in that church, because that is totally not God's heart. 
Did you ever felt like you got help from the church or did Satan just keep you busy and busy is another one of his nice little tools? A really dark period was we were in New Jersey in the inner city. We went to the doctor and the doctor put him on a diet. After dinner, uh, I would not serve him a second piece of pie. He said, well, if I can't have a second piece of pie, I have nothing to live for. And he started walking upstairs saying that he has nothing to live for and that he was going to blow his brains out. I stood at the bottom of the stairs thinking, is he bluffing? I go up the stairs after him, not knowing what would happen. Mm. And sure enough, he had a gun to his head. But it took me an hour to talk him down and to get him to put that gun away. That was very traumatic for me for years. Make no mistake about it. Threats of violence, such as that one, is abuse. Mm. Whether or not he did anything, whether or not it was a good outcome, Mm. that was really disturbing. Very much so. I can only imagine for you to be told that, envision that, and then see the potential of it with the gun to his head. He had a sound and video business on top of our church planting. Now, he would do business with gay bars and swingers clubs. And I had asked him, now, why would a preacher even go into these places? And he claimed he was talking to people about Jesus. Well, you know, I would believe you, but you're not sleeping with your own wife. So I'm not buying it. And not only that, were you seeing any sort of fruit from that? Like they're coming to the Lord. They are coming to church. Not that I was aware of, but, you know, I don't know. Maybe he was telling him about Jesus. My music was so important to me. What was the point, the breaking point that sent you in to the decision that divorce has got to be my only way out? I eventually dragged my husband to three different counselors in order to get some help. I was trying to draw a line in the sand at that point. This was eight or nine years into the relationship. I felt trapped and alone and bitter. I really wanted to take my my marriage vows seriously, but I had pretty much given up at that point. You know, we were roommates, not marriage partners. Did you ever consider suicide? I didn't consider suicide because I, I, I knew that a good life was out there. I did have thoughts of okay, I could disappear from the face of the earth. And I had these ideas of um, smothering him with a pillow Mm -hmm. in his sleep. And at that point, I was like, that's not who I am. And I'm like, what options do I have? I stopped praying because I didn't think God was listening anymore. I stopped doing my personal Bible reading as well. Now, I continued to wear my mask and serve the Lord on the outside, but... I sank into a deep depression. Because when it's broke, it's broke. You can't act like it's not broke. It's broke. And notice I never mentioned that he ever hit me. The common denominator of all abuse is not hitting. It's control. A person can make your life a living hell without laying a finger on you. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what he did. Broken bones and bruises go away, but damage on the inside will stay with you forever. That's true. So the decision to leave actually came on our our 13th anniversary. We went to a bed and breakfast. We attempted to to have sex, but uh, we collided heads by accident. 
trying to make things happen. It was just, you know, just forget it kind of thing. So the next day I woke up so depressed and I thought, I cannot live another year like this. My very good friend, one of the three friends that I had told about my situation, she said when I had called her crying again, and she says, I'm tired of you calling me and telling me about this abusive man that you live with. And she said something to me that I will never forget, that I had to get out of that house and that God is not going to stop loving me no matter what happens. And I realized that she was right. I had cried out to God and I said, I'm willing to take whatever consequences that would come as a result of leaving my husband, but I had to get out of there before it destroyed me. I really thought that God was going to punish me for leaving. Because <laughs> you were breaking your vow, because God takes vows yeah. very seriously. When you look back, what do you think he was saying to you along the way? When you finally get this freedom of like, he's going to love me no matter what. He's going to restore or repair no matter what, but I've got to get out of here. So when you look back, what do you think he was trying to tell you along the way? I didn't really see it until I was actually out of the house. I, I left when he was out of town. I had to keep it a secret for four months. It was at my friend's house. That's where I was staying. And I was laying on the bed, and I was expecting the proverbial shoe to drop. Mm -hmm. I was expecting the fire and brimstone and the judgment for leaving. Right. And you know what? I don't have a scripture verse. I don't have anything to quote. But all I felt was, okay, I'm, I'm vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I'm a turtle with somebody that took the shell off my back. But you know what? I felt nothing but love and comfort and acceptance from God. That was a feeling that came over me. That was his presence over me. It was something I did not expect. Mm -hmm. And that was the start of me getting back into a, a real authentic relationship with God mm -hmm. where it wasn't based on <laughs> rules and trying to gain his favor to be super Christian. It was, I'm loved and accepted just the way that I am. Did you ever fear for your life when trying to walk this out? When I walked out, I did not. I was really, really smart about leaving. I had to be craftier than he was. So I did not tell him where I was going. He did not know where I was. I had a different cell phone. I had a different P.O. box, and he only communicated by email and went to my friend's church after that. So, mm -hmm. no, I only felt safe because he did not know where I was. So you get the courage to leave this marriage, and you feel the Lord's presence after you're out, and you catch this new breath of fresh air uh, what are you looking at now at this stage that we're talking about? Where are you at in your relationship with God? You mentioned that it got better. It began to grow. Oh, definitely. Well, I had to leave my denomination because they wouldn't accept me there unless I re reunited with my husband. So I had to leave the denomination altogether and I had to look for a new church. So 
I did find a church that accepted me the way that I was, warts and all, mm-hmm. and started to read the Bible again and to actually have a prayer life. And when I went to my friend's church, it was the first time I had been in, in a church in a long time that had contemporary Christian music, and they had a full band up there. I think it was Amazing Grace, and I just just crying my eyes out in, in church because all through my marriage, I was not a, a crier. I, I held all that stuff in. I stuffed it. All the floodgates just opened up when I started going back. And music speaks to you. So oh. that probably was part of that release for you as music. Yes, the music was very, very important to me. Um, the first thing that I did was recorded my album. And that was done within six months. I hired a studio and it, it was it was completed. Uh, the, the bad part was um, all of my fans were in my previous church and they all knew that I had left my husband. And so I could not do a release party because all the churches that I had sang at and been a part of, I was no longer welcome because mm-hmm. I was divorced. I sang more on the traditional side at that time. And my new friends, although they supported me, they weren't really into the traditional inspirational music. They liked more of the contemporary stuff. So I never, (laughs) never really got it launched, but I did it anyway. And I was very proud that I, I finally got it done. What a courageous act. You've been 13 years in an abusive situation that literally will silence your voice. But you take this proactive step and launch the record yourself. I think that's beautiful, whether it went anywhere or not. To me, that says freedom, courage, talent, because God has given you the gifts of music, whether it's singing, playing instruments. And so for you to use them as a form of worship. Do you feel God's presence in music? Because the word says God inhabits our praise. I was singing in Paris, France. Actually, one of my college professors started a church out there, and sister lives in France, and we were invited to come and sing. They had Q&A during the concert, and somebody asked me that very question. Do you feel the power of God when you sing? A secret about me is that I have stage fright. (laughs) Even through all that training and all that performing since kindergarten, I have stage fright, and so getting through my performances, I'm very focused on the technique and the words and trying to deliver the message. To be honest, I don't I don't feel anything when I'm up there performing. I want to be a blessing, and I ask God to bless what I'm about to sing. The feelings come when I'm listening to music. One of my favorite bands is Leland. My now husband introduced me to Leland, and... I remember being in the car and I never heard of them and they started playing and I could just feel the presence of the Lord in the car with me. I, it was amazing. And I said, who is this on the radio? And he said, oh, that's Leland. I do feel God's presence when I listen to music. Mm-hmm. Um, the performing part is more, <laughs> more technical for me. That makes sense. It does make sense. I can't carry a tune in a bucket, but (laughs) when I'm worshiping, you know, I'm listening and offering my joyful noise unto the Lord. (laughs) 
I, I do feel the Lord's presence and I do enjoy that very much. It is a way for me to worship him and to spend time with him is through music and contemporary music for me. Although I was raised on the hymns, still love the hymns, but have a lot of fun with the contemporary music right now. I had kind of had a um, identity crisis with my music switching over and transitioning because I uh, was, you know, raised with a lot of different kinds of music. My dad had all kinds of music growing up when I was in the church. You can only listen to hymns. And once I was out, then it was like, okay, this is the first time that I get to choose mm-hmm. for myself. Okay, what music do I like? What music do I want to sing? I sing jazz. I sing blues. I sing oh. classic rock. I do progressive rock. My current husband, we're in a band together and mm-hmm. we write music together. And so I'm in a really good place with my music. There's got to be an identity crisis that comes in right there when you walked away from that 13-year marriage. I have all these choices in front of me that are mine. I can choose my own furniture. I can choose my own clothes. I can choose what career I want to do. Sometimes too many choices. almost paralyzes you when you come out of a restrictive environment where all the decisions and choices were made for you now. And I made a lot of I had a lot of mistakes that I made afterwards, after mm-hmm. I got out. But most of my identity crisis was in finding a new church that I could start over with and lick my wounds and heal. Did you ever go through any sort of guilt or shame because you broke your vow or for whatever reason, as you transitioned out of that, did you have to have a heart to heart conversation with the Lord about it? Or did you just receive his presence and embrace that and walk in that? You know, I did have to mourn the death of my marriage. I felt that I did everything that I possibly could to to save the marriage, but I would have liked the parting of the Red Sea kind of a thing, but it wasn't, it wasn't going to happen. I can't make somebody do what I want. Divorce was called a sin and I had to do a lot of study and a lot of prayer about that very topic because I knew enough about the Bible that, okay, is divorce really a sin? In my research, I found out, okay, the law of Moses allowed for divorce, a writing of divorcement. Mm -hmm. And Jesus mentioned that in the New Testament not to divorce your wives for frivolous reasons. The Pharisees, they could, you know, divorce their wife for burning dinner or something. And God divorced Israel for whoring after other gods. So it was years and years before I came to the realization that we can't put marriage on an altar. You know, people are important, not, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Don't get me wrong. I am Mm pro-marriage. I'm married now. Mm-hmm. I believe we should take take as much help and prayer and support to save a marriage, but we and- can't worship marriage as, okay, the institution of marriage is more important than people, more important than somebody's mental health, more mm-hmm. important than the children who are suffering in that marriage also. That was kind of the, the things that I struggled with with God, 
And I'm at peace with them now. When you look at the fact that God does allow divorce, he's not happy with it because he's a God of vow. You know, when you make a vow, you keep a vow because that's who he is. And that's the example he's given us. He's made a vow to you. He's made a vow to me as believers, daughters of the king. He's made a vow to us and he will see it through to the end. He will fulfill it and never back down from that. I believe that's his heart when it comes to marriage is that it give us a representation or a shadow of his vow to us, but he's the only one who can genuinely and truly fulfill that. We're broken. Yes. And God is full of grace and mercy and he can take something that was horrible and dark and, and turn it into something good, Mm -hmm. something to glorify the Lord with. How did your healing journey go until you got to this point today where you're at today? It was not, you know, rainbows and unicorns for my healing process. I lost everything on top of my church. I made a lot of horrible mistakes. I was very vulnerable and prime target for a lot of predators. But, you know, healing is a journey and we will not be completely healed until we get to glory, right? Right. But I will say that I've healed quite a bit. I still have triggers sometimes, but I know how to heal them now, handle them now. But when I first left, it was it was a really long time before I found resources for someone like me. Mm-hmm. I thought I was the only one that went through this. I even tried to start my own groups, like maybe a Bible study or something, but the, the doors kept closing. You know, and I went to divorce care and I went to a couple sessions with my my new pastor, but nothing was really, it wasn't really dealing with the abuse that I went through. Sort of like your PTSD, if you will. Yeah, a little bit of PTSD. They didn't really know how to deal with that. It wasn't until I joined our current church. The pastor's wife told me about Mending the Soul and invited me to join a small group. So Mending the Soul is a group for survivors to heal from abuse. Now, I've never seen anything like it. It was 16 weeks long with two facilitators and four other participants. I was really impressed with the curriculum. It's created by a theology and an ethics professor and a professional trauma counselor. Mm-hmm. So my pastor was saying, you know, this is biblically and psychologically sound principles that are in this group. So the curriculum uses things like journaling and art Mm. and storytelling and music as tools for healing. I went through my own group. Now, I had thought that I was pretty good and healed at this point. When I went through my group, there were corners that needed sweeping Mm. and some unresolved things that needed to be processed. But I was so impressed with the group when I finished that I immediately trained to be a facilitator, and I now run my own groups. So we've got groups all over the world and worn-torn places like the Congo, and this stuff works. God Mm -hmm. has changed so many lives. I mean, my life especially. They have programs for sex trafficking survivors, children, for teenagers. 
The best thing is it's free. I think we just had to pay for our books. That was life-changing for me. That was the only time that any church that I joined ever dealt with abuse. So what was life-changing about it? When you think about it changed, it opened your eyes, healed you. In what way was it life-changing? It was life-changing because the principles that we learned were, how does God really see you? Because when we go through the abuse, and we've already talked about this, it changes your perspective of God. So I had to relearn how God sees me. I'm his precious child. Also, I did not know all of the different ways that you can be abused. We went through everything, like There's financial abuse, there's spiritual abuse, there's economic abuse, um, physical abuse, which everybody's familiar with, sexual Mm -hmm. abuse. A lot of those I went through. I found out what a narcissist was. Oh, is that what you call him? (laughs) I have names for it. And we learned about all the different people in the Bible who suffered abuse as well. I mean, Joseph suffered incredible abuse. Mm-hmm. Daniel, Tamar, and Bathsheba, and Jesus. I mean, his family was going to put him in a mental facility because they thought he was nuts. So we learned so many things, learned so much about myself and that a lot of it was boundaries. Oh my goodness, boundaries is so important in healing because a lot of times we're subject to abuse because we don't, we have not established boundaries. I had to learn how to recognize what an abuser looks like. They look like everybody else. They look like judges. They look like teachers. They look like preachers. What are some of the things about them that you can now notice when you look at a judge or a preacher or a teacher? What is something that would give away the fact that they're abusers? Well, they like power. They like telling people what to do. They like twisting the scriptures. If you cannot depend on what the Sunday school teacher tells you and what the preacher tells you, you have to be in the Word and you have to study it for yourself. Not giving you any choices, taking away your choices. Whether they're right or wrong, you're the only one that answers to God when you leave this world. You don't answer to the preacher you don't answer to your husband, and you don't answer to the, your family. You answer to God. You've got to make choices for your own life, regardless of what anybody else tells you. You have to listen to, to God and His instruction and the what, Holy Spirit. What do you think the disconnect was? Was it? Do you think it was just age, but the disconnect between being in college and studying the Word and yet not able to apply it to a real life situation. Do you think it was just knowledge versus relationship? The church that I was at, the the sermons all sounded the same. They Mm -hmm. preached about the same topics, preached the same verses. Bible college itself was very, very busy, and you were cramming to pass your tests, of course. You had to Mm -hmm. memorize verses, and you had to pretty much regurgitate Bible doctrine. But I think checking off the boxes, reading your Bible through in a year, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. I have read through the Bible many times, but I have never done it in a year. You know why? It's because I'm trying to understand what the Bible is 
saying to me mm-hmm. rather than, okay, I got to read chapters three, four, and five in order to get my boxes checked so I can stand right. up in front of the church and say, I read through my Bible in a year. There's a lot mm-hmm. of that going along. And that's a very important distinction because there's knowledge of the word, but then there's relationship with the one who is the word. So I think that knowledge doesn't necessarily equate for relationship. We can know the word all day long, but if we don't know the word, him, what difference does knowing the word mean? Right. You can't apply it. It doesn't make sense to you. There's no context for it, or at least you're out of context with it when you do try to throw it around, wield it. Backing up just a little bit, you talked about identity. You talked about boundaries. What are some of the other things when someone is coming out of a controlled, abusive situation, any degree of abuse, like you just mentioned several types of abuse, mental, emotional, physical, uh, spiritual abuse. What is something that you would want to, to encourage a woman with? Advice I would give to anybody listening that is going through some of these things, you're recognizing that, hey, that sounds like me on some of these. I would encourage you to take action today to get out of that situation. And it's going to be the hardest thing that you've ever done in your whole life. But nothing is going to change until you take action. And I don't mean doing it all at once. Take, take tiny little steps. Sometimes abuse is caused by somebody's addicted to drugs or alcoholism, or maybe the abuser is not saved. I would definitely say try and get the abuser into counseling or a treatment center to see if those things can be can be resolved. I would get yourself out of that that environment if you are being physically abused if you have children. So get your kids, get yourself out of that situation. I'm not saying that there isn't hope, but if there's no fruits of repentance, and I mean real repentance, not crocodile tears. Or promises, a bunch of verbal promises. Empty promises, real accountability for their actions, then You don't have a marriage. I hate to say this, but you don't have a marriage. So I encourage you to take a step to make a change, little changes. What is something that a woman can do in order to begin the process, but protect herself and her children? First would be to find a place to go. And there are battered women shelters around in our area. There are so many more resources now than there were when I was going through my abuse. There are shelters. If you have a a trusted friend like I did to stay with, I would definitely leave when the abuser is not home. I would make sure to take some sort of emergency bag that has some clothes, some essentials. You need to take your, your documents, birth certificates, driver's license, social security cards, any kind of documents that you're going to need. I knew a gal that I was helping and her abuser locked all that stuff in a safe Mm -hmm. and she could not get to even car keys. She had to call the sheriff to come and get those things. Call the sheriff to to escort you and get your stuff that you need. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what their job is. But you got to 
start getting a P.O. box, a bank account that your abuser does not know about. You need to get a separate cell phone. All this stuff goes to the P.O. box. You're going to have to try and funnel some money away. You're going to need some funds. Some of it may involve you being an Academy Award-winning actress or actor, because you're going to have to pretend that nothing is wrong when you leave. That's what I had to do. You do not want to alert your abuser that you are leaving, if at all possible, because Hmm. you will not have the advantage in that aspect. And just in case someone thinks that we are promoting that someone leave their husband or their children, not at all. You have heard her heart on marriage. I'm the same way. I was married for just shy of 32 years with was my husband with over 33, little over 33 years and lost him unexpectedly to a massive heart attack. So we are both proponents for marriage. It's just that these things are real. These situations are real. There are real people suffering, Christians, believers, non-believers. And God understands that he has solutions and redemption and restoration for you as an individual, for your children. And we're just saying it's okay if you need to do that. God is going to be with you through it all. Diana, what do you know now about God that you didn't know before the trauma experience? Oh, so many things that God has shown me. God is so full of grace and love and mercy and he was right beside me through the whole thing, mm-hmm. even though I couldn't see or feel him. He was there, and he was mourning for me. He was crying. Mm-hmm. He was grieving for my pain and my suffering. And he wanted me to lean on him and to trust in him. Mm-hmm for comfort. I have a different relationship with God now. It's it's not a legalistic having to do all these things to earn his favor. He loves me just as I am. He loves you just as you are. Reading God's word is is a joy. I'm discovering so many new things. I'm in the Old Testament right now <laughs> and learning so many things that I never even noticed before. God's opening my eyes. And mm. I used to be so judgmental towards other other people that have gone through divorce, gambling, alcoholism, or you name it. God's taking me down a peg or two because when I went through my divorce, it was like, oh, this is what it's like. And God forgive me for judging those other people that went through all these things, depression and divorce and all this stuff. God forgive me for doing that to somebody else. So I'm I'm much more empathetic and I give a lot more grace to other people now because God has given me that grace. You just listed off several things that you could be thankful for, but can you think of something that you are thankful for God that's separate from that? Although that's a nice list. I am thankful for the ministry that we have with Mending the Soul. And I started my own podcast, The Wounds of the Faithful, in October, in the middle of this pandemic. Because, you know, people need to hear this message and they need extra help, especially now. What is the message of your uh, podcast? What is the focus of that? 
I help the church heal from abuse and trauma, domestic violence. And is that part of your music ministry? Tell me about your music ministry. Part of my podcast, since I, I am a musician, so is my husband, I have a music segment at the end where I, I showcase my music or I have guests on the show also that are musicians. And um, we have encouraging music because we talked about how powerful music is as a healing tool. I'm about to record another album and it's going to be more on the songs that I wrote about abuse and about my healing process and about the things I've learned about God. And so that is something that we're working on right now. I'm very thankful, thankful for that. My husband and I've We'll be married 11 years in March 12th. <laughs> Congratulations. Let me ask you, if you, what practices do you have in place to maintain your connection with God now? Music's a huge part. I was KJV only for the longest time. That was my background. And I bought a new Bible and a different Bible version, an ESV. That has really changed how I read the Bible, because I'm noticing all these things. It's amazing what you notice. If I forget to pray or I'm, I'm too tired to read my Bible, I don't feel that condemnation or that guilt of, right. oh, I didn't read my Bible today. Now I'm, I'm a horrible person. Right. It's okay. God understands. Yeah, I had a bad day and I'll meet with him again tomorrow. He can see when you're tired or when you're weary yeah. and he'll tuck you in himself. So he's happy and content taking care of you and tending to you as his daughter. Well, that's transformational for sure to know that his presence is real and that he does care and that he enters into the most difficult, painful situations. And I have found that he does that even when it's my fault that he will still come and tend to me, heal me, restore me. So it's a beautiful thing to know his presence. And I am so grateful for you sharing your experience with my listeners today. Thank you, Diana. I appreciate you. Oh, I am so thankful for you. And thanks so much for having me on the show. And I look forward to listening to some more of your episodes and your other guests. Thank you for your time and for sharing this experience with my guest. I hope you have found encouragement for today and a deeper revelation of God's heart in the midst of pain and suffering. We'd love to have you as a subscriber to Finding God in Our Pain so that you can be connected with all my guests as they share their personal experiences and professional knowledge about pain and suffering. And because this podcast is a division of the website, A Life of Thrive, for more information and the various ways you can connect with us, please visit the website, alifeofthrive.com. I look forward to sharing more transparent stories from the hearts of women who intimately know what it means to have their world flipped upside down, their authentic struggle to make sense of it, and what recovery and healing looks like. Till then, sweet woman, remember you are not alone and that God speaks the most beautiful things in the dark.